Let's, let's try that again. Good morning, LifeBridge. Some of you were late even though you had an extra hour to get here, which is just <laughs> unbelievable. We're going to be friends. You don't know it yet, though. Um, Thanks so much, uh, Pastor Matt, for allowing me to be here. I got to tell you, I had the opportunity to come to LifeBridge just a couple of months ago um, and meet with some of the staff and some of the team here. Many of you know uh, Tim and Sharissa, who have been a part of LifeBridge for many years, and I have the privilege, my day job, is working with them at Slingshot Group, and we get to serve churches and nonprofit organizations and kingdom leaders across the country. And so many of you know Tim, you know Sharissa, uh, they're always uh, around. Sharissa's doing all kinds of stuff. She's the glue that makes it kind of all come together. She's amazing. And then Tim, I got to tell you, since joining Tim's team, uh, you know, the last three and a half years has just been a blast being a part of Slingshot. And really the best part of my week is when I pick up the phone, because Tim calls me every week, and I pick up the phone, and on the other line I hear, Might. <laughs> How are ya? <laughs> I'm working on it. It's only taken me two and a half, three years to get there, but uh, no one's paying me to do impressions. Um, but such an encouraging thing. And so Tim and Sharissa introduced me to LifeBridge and the amazing team here a couple of months ago. I had the opportunity to come. And, and as Pastor Matt was sharing, I, a lot of times I'm working with churches behind the scenes, helping them with their communications efforts, everything from digital platforms, social media, websites, communication strategies. How do we use these tools of technology and leverage them to reach people with our message of hope? That's really what my life has become about uh, in so many ways. And so um, as I came and I shared with the staff, uh, they asked me to share during staff meetings. So I just started to share my story um, and my journey and what God's done in my life. And uh, about a week later, I got an email from the team. They're like, you got to come back and share that with our whole church. And so um, I've just gotten to know your pastor and the leaders here at this church over the last several months. And I got to tell you, you are so blessed. You're so blessed, LifeBridge. It's amazing. Um, I get to travel and I get to meet with a lot of amazing leadership teams and work with churches and and you have some of the choicest leaders and pastors who love you, who are praying about the future of this church, who are investing in you. And, and so it's just so cool to be behind the scenes and see the effort and the work that's going in. And I know that you know you're blessed and you've had great leadership here for many, many decades. And I got to tell you, the future looks so good. And, um, and I'm so blessed to be a part of it um, in some small way. And so this morning, thanks once again, Matt and the team for having me, allowing me to be here. It was so fun too, whenever they said, hey, this is the season series that we're in on Colossians, and they gave me a text. Um, you know, when you're a guest speaker, you pretty much get assigned what you're going to speak. But they said, hey, teach on this text because this is the series we're in, but then let's unpack your story, share your story with the congregation. So this morning, um, my hope is, is that as I share my story, you're going to hear me be very vulnerable this morning. Now, I choose to be vulnerable, not because it's easy, but because there's healing when we start to realize that all of us have walked through things in our life that are sometimes beyond our control, and we can find ourselves living in the stories of others. And I believe that stories reveal strategies on how God Works, And I want to tell you today, I don't know what you've walked in here carrying or what you've walked in here with that's looming over your head today. But I believe that in this story, we're going to see a strategy of where God is at work. 
And I want to tell you right now that no matter what you're walking through and going through, that God is at work in your life and in your story. And everything right now may be pointing to defeat or to failure, but I got to tell you that there is hope. And as we come to Colossians chapter 2, we're going to pick up and we're going to read the text that Pastor Matt read last week. And I just want to kind of springboard off of his message and share some of my story. But in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 is where we pick up. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul is writing words of hope to the Christians in this fledgling little church called Colossae. And Paul writes to them and he says this in verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head over every ruler and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in him through faith and the power of God. Or excuse me, putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. This morning we celebrated baptism just a few minutes ago. Where's the gal that was baptized? Are you over here? Awesome. Buried with him. And raised to life. Um, during the greeting time, I don't know if you saw it, but like there were like, I don't know, like a whole mob of, of women around her just embracing her and encouraging her because truly baptism is this amazing testimony that we declare publicly that we have been buried with Christ, that our old self, our past is dead and gone and the new has come and we get to live in this new reality that Christ has invited us to. And Paul says, don't forget that's your story too, Colossian Christians. Verse 13, and when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. I love that word all. That's an important word. In verse 14, listen to what he did. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them. Today, I want to talk to you for the next couple of minutes from the topic simply entitled, Canceled Debt. Canceled Debt. Can we pray? God, I thank you for this opportunity and what's happening at LifeBridge. Thank you for already this morning just witnessing the power of your cross and your resurrection. Jesus, you are in the business of changing lives. And so, Lord, I pray today that as we unpack your word and your truth, that you would speak to our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul writes to the Colossian Christians, and the, the first verse that we read, verse 8, the Apostle Paul starts out by warning the Christians in Colossae not to be taken captive. Now, he's not talking about in the physical sense. Of course, this is a metaphor. 
And the original language is, he says, don't be kidnapped. That's the word. Don't be kidnapped. Don't let someone come sneak in and carry you off against your will. He's saying, don't be deceived or kidnapped by this. By what? By anything other than the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Because what's happening in the church at Colossae is everybody was starting to come in and as Christians were starting to share their story about what Jesus had done in their life, other people started speaking into that and saying things that weren't true. Like, well, Jesus really didn't come in the flesh and he didn't really die for everyone. And they started making up all these other philosophies and they started attaching kind of cultural ideas to it. And before you know it, what came out on the other side of that was something that didn't really look anything like what God had intended. And so Paul is this kind of, he, he's this man who is contending for the faith. He's, he's a weak man. He's a feeble man in many ways in his own flesh. But he's strong in the power of God. And he writes over half of the New Testament. And most of what he's doing, Paul serves as the chief reminding officer. That's what he's doing. And he reminds the Colossians, hey, don't forget where you've come from. Because like the Colossian Christians, they were subject to what we are all subject to. And that is a little bit of spiritual amnesia. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at what happens with an amnesia patient. There's a lot to it, but just at a high level. Not only can a a person who is suffering from amnesia, not only can they not remember the past, but it's their inability to, to understand what happened in the past that prohibits them from living a productive life in the future. Because the way that you interpret future events and how to handle them is by extrapolating experiences from the past. And so an amnesia patient has no ability to imagine the future because they don't remember where they've come from. And Paul is writing to the Christians here in Colossae and he's saying, hey, don't suffer from spiritual amnesia. Don't forget the incredible things that Christ has done for you. Paul serving as the chief reminding officer, he's saying this, it's hard to swallow a lie when you're feeding on God's truth. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling the Christians at Colossae. It's hard to to swallow a lie when you're feeding on God's truth. So when you're taking in what God says about you, and, and that's the affirmation that you're giving yourself what God's word says, and not just what culture says or the labels that you've been given, but instead living into this reality that we've been called to something greater. Paul says, don't forget that. Don't let anyone take you captive. Because when you forget whose you are, you'll forget who you are. He was trying to remind the Colossian Christians, if you forget your journey and your story and where God has been at work, then you're going to take on all this other baggage that's actually not going to lead to freedom, but it's going to lead to more bondage. Paul reminds us of whose we are. That Christ has laid claim to our lives, and because of it, it demands a response. Paul reminds us what Jesus did for us and who we are, specifically because of the cross. The message of the cross is something that Pastor Matt talked about last week, and I want to 
state something that he said last week that I think is so powerful. And when I, when I heard you say it, Pastor Matt, as I was listening to your message, it resonated with me so strongly when you said the power of the cross is greater than the power of your past. The power of the cross is greater than the power of your past. Look again at verse number 14. The Bible says that Jesus erased the record that stood against us. Now, as I begin to tell you my story this morning, I want to just set the record straight and say that I mean no disrespect to those that I'll bring up in this story, my family or others. But again, choosing to be vulnerable for your sake and also doing so in the hope that you can see that the power of the cross is greater than the power of your past. The Bible says that Jesus erased the written record that was stacked against us. When I was 17 years of age, I remember sitting in a courtroom and waiting trial. I was arrested for the first time when I was 12 years of age. Between the time of 12 and 17 years of age, I was arrested several times in and out of juvenile detention centers and homes and running away and just a life of rebellion. But at 17 years of age, I remember sitting in the courtroom and looking at four years of time. And the judge had on the bench next to him stacked all the legal documents that told my story of rebellion and law-breaking. And I thought for sure that when that gavel fell, that I'd do four years. Now, you may be sitting here wondering what was it that led you to this point where you've got all of these charges stacked against you. Well, you see, my, star my story starts a lot earlier than that, even before I was born. You see, my mom met my dad when she was 17 years of age. She had dropped out of school about a year before her father, my grandfather, was sentenced to prison when she was just a little girl and did many years in prison. She was raised in a home with five brothers and sisters, and so her mom, my grandmother, struggled to make ends meet. My mom lived a very volatile life all the way um, until she was 17 years of age, at which time she became pregnant. She met my dad when she was 17. She was working in a truck, truck stop. My father was an overnight truck driver. He was hauling produce from Indiana. That's where he was from. And she was living in central Florida, just outside Orlando. And so he met her at a truck stop and they began to develop some form of relationship. And, and, and so through that, after a couple of times of connecting and meeting up, she called my dad and said, I'm pregnant. He was 21, off a divorce. that He had he'd gotten married right out of high school and had a child and then got divorced. And so now he's got this 17-year-old Floridian girl pregnant. And um, she called him and let him know, and he decided to get in his semi-tractor trailer and drive back down to Florida and put her in his truck and put all her belongings into a cardboard box and 
she moved 12 hours to start a new life. About six months later, that baby was born, and that's my older brother. Three and a half years later, I was born, and six years after that, my baby brother was born. So three boys being raised in a home with not a lot of hope. In fact, neither one of my parents actually had high school diploma at the time. And so work was pretty sporadic. It was pretty common that either one or both of my parents were unemployed at times. And so I remember as a kid going to school and realizing that there's two types of people in the world. As I looked around my classmates, I realized that there were the haves and the have-nots. And I noticed that I was a have-not. Because everything I had was hand-me-down and didn't have all the right brands or all the right names. Sometimes my hair wasn't fixed because it was hard to get out the door in the morning without a lot of help. And I'd go to school and sometimes I'd get made fun of because I didn't have the right stuff on, didn't look the right way, didn't come from the right place. And I remember thinking to myself, even as a kid, if, if people could just come home with me for a couple of minutes even, and see the life that I live and the hell that I live in, and maybe they'd be a little less quick to say these things to me. But you know, they never did, and I was so embarrassed where I was from that most people didn't even know where I, was, where I lived for many years. But growing up for me from the earliest time I could remember was a struggle. By the time I was three or four years of age, began to endure not just the verbal, but also the physical abuse of both of my parents. The trauma of that would take many, many years to unpack and not to feel like it's my fault. By the time I was eight, nine years old, though, I felt like it was all my fault. All the volatility in our house, the constant arguing and throwing of things and anger and lashing out and living in a very small, rundown house, living on food stamps, my mom looking over her shoulder when she paid for groceries at the store out of shame. And, and growing up in that kind of environment, I remember thinking to myself, if people knew where I'd come from, then when I hear these stories about achieving something or being successful in life, I'd think, if they just knew me, if they just knew what I was going through, then they wouldn't have that expectation of me because there's no way that I can ever be anything. To make matters worse, not only did I endure both the verbal and the physical abuse of my parents, but from the earliest time I could remember, my dad was sick. He was in and out of the hospital. He was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes about 10 years too late after the fact, so that by the time he was diagnosed, he was in kidney failure, renal failure. He had a stroke when he was 40 years of age. I was 13, and I'd already been arrested once at this point because... As a kid growing up, when you grow up in this environment and you're told it's your fault, you start to believe it. And so the only thing that I knew how to do was to act out. And I was really good at acting out. I, I was that at-risk youth. When I got arrested at 12, they put me on probation. They put me in a special classroom and they said, basically, you'll be in this because you can't achieve. They labeled me an at-risk youth. And so I lived up to that label. And I found myself at a young age, even when my father was sick in and out of the hospital, just wanting somebody to see me. Because when you grow up feeling like an oops or an accident, of course you act out. And people around me would say, well, he's just acting out. And I wanted to scream, yes, I'm just acting out. 
And I don't know where you're at today, and you may feel invisible. You may feel like an oops or an accident, and your life doesn't matter or doesn't count. I know that feeling. And I woke up every single day and would go to school and try to achieve, and yet every time I would come home and I'd go to the hospital and I'd see my father laying in a hospital bed, I'd think, is this my life? What hope do I have? After his stroke, I thought there was a little bit of hope that he would somehow improve and get better. While he began to improve after his stroke over the next couple of years, he began to improve physically. The, the abuse began to intensify during those early teenage years for me. Physical violence and fighting and fists and all the stuff. To the point that it got so bad that I just decided to start running away from home. I didn't want to be there anymore. And every time the cops would bring me back, the cops were at my house about every week for a, a long time. And I kept thinking to myself, when are they going to realize I don't want to be here anymore? But the hardest day of my life happened when I was 15 years of age, two years after my father had had a stroke and it began to recover. He had another bout where he ended up in the hospital for about three months. And the night before um, the hardest day of my life, he came home from a three-month stay in the hospital, during which time that evening when he came home, we got in a huge fight. I'd been arrested, I'd gotten in trouble at school and got kicked out and he was angry with me. And so the verbal abuse started and we started going at each other, finally me slamming the door. And the next morning I got up to go to school I looked over in the living room as I walked out the front door. I saw my father sitting in his wheelchair. I looked to my left. I saw my mom cleaning up after breakfast. I walked right out the door to get in my friend's car. And as I walked out the door, I heard my mom's voice trailing off saying, Keith, we have to take your dad back to the hospital again today. He's not feeling very well. And I said, whatever. The door slammed. I got in my friend's car. And at 2.30 that afternoon, while I was in school planning on getting high and getting drunk with my friends that night, my father died on an operating table. My mom came to pick me up after school that day at a friend's house. I had no idea that when I pulled, or when I walked outside, she had pulled up in the driveway of my friend's house. I walked up to the car and I saw my mom, like I'd never seen her before. She put her hands over her face like this as I got close to the car and I saw the tears jump through the gaps on her fingers. And she rolled down the window to tell me that my dad had died. Now, that's a story to you, but I remember that sinking feeling like this can't be happening to me. And see, no one knew that the night before that I'd had this huge blow up and argument, and I never get to take those words back. So walking every single day after that with this enormous amount of guilt hit me so heavy on the day that we buried my father. Now, that day was actually 24 years ago today, November 3rd. And it was on that day that I remember as a 15-year-old kid walking through the cemetery. And it rained that day, and the grass was wet. And all I could think about is hopelessness. All I could see was death and destruction and no way out. As we buried my father and his casket was lowered into the ground and the dirt came over it, it just felt like this symbol of my life that everything was over, that the dirt was closing in around me and there was nothing worth living for anymore. 
bunch of my friends had gotten out of school that day and came over and said, Keith, come on, man, let's go get high, let's go get drunk. And that's what I did for the next two years. I nearly destroyed my life with drug abuse, running away, criminal activity, to the point that I ended up and landed on house arrest. And I remember the day that I was sitting on the edge of my bed on a Saturday, 17 years of age, waiting my trial, surveying my life and thinking about all the failure all the challenges, all the disappointments, the death, that life wasn't fair. And as a 17-year-old drug dealer at the time, I had a gun. It was underneath my bed. And so on that Saturday morning, I reached under my bed and I pulled the gun out. And I remember that feeling of, your life is miserable. Why don't you just end it all right now? No one will miss you. No one will care. The world would be better off without you. I looked at my charges and I said, there's no way out of this. I looked at the abuse and the destruction in my life and I said, there's no way to overcome this. So why don't you just give up and end it all, Keith? And as I'm contemplating ending my life, the phone rang. I got up and I went to the living room to answer the phone. It was a house phone because it was the late 90s. So, um, <laughs> and my mom was on the phone and she said, Keith, I'm at work. As soon as I picked up, Keith, I'm at work. And I just spoke with my friend Leanne. And um, now see, my mom had this friend Leanne and all, the, all I knew about Leanne was that she was a religious person. She would stop by and sit on the front porch with my mom sometimes, and they, she would talk about the Lord. Well, I didn't want to talk about the Lord, because I was 17, and I wasn't raised in church, and I thought, well, if the Lord exists, then where is he? And why is my life so bad? That was my only thought of God. Um, that, maybe it was for old people um, as they cram for their final exam. So that was kind of it, but, which isn't bad, by the way, if you need to do that. Uh, so at the time, I told my mom, I said, Mom, this lady's crazy. I don't want to talk to her. What are you talking about? She said, well, she wants to come by and just talk to you for a little bit. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to get the speech for, from religion, you know, from this woman. My mom is adamant that she's coming. I'm arguing with her. And finally she says, look, we've tried everything else, Keith. You're on house arrest. You're not going anywhere. Sometimes God has to put you in a corner <laughs> to get your attention. It seemed like a couple hours after that that the doorbell rang. I go to the door and there's this lady standing there. She's about this tall. And she's got a Bible in her hand. Standing on my doorstep. I answered the door, hairs down to my shoulders. I weigh about 120 pounds. I'm emaciated from drug abuse, completely strung out on drugs. Eyes sunk in my head. You wouldn't recognize me if you saw me. And she looks at me, and I look at her, and before she could get a word out of her mouth, she was trying to say something to me, and I interrupted her, and I said, listen, 
I hate God and I hate you. You can leave. I was a nice kid. (laughs) And without hesitating, Leanne, with that Bible in her hand, looked right back at me in the eyes and said, Keith, you can hate God and you can hate me. That's okay. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you and has a plan for your life. Now see, already some of you in this room, you've got spiritual amnesia because you were told that when you were six, but you forgot what that means. I had never heard that. In fact, it was like somebody had hit me in the chest with a sledgehammer when she said that. It took me back because I thought, there's no way that Jesus could love me. Not with where I've been and what I've done. And as Paul said, the written record stacked against me. No way. So at that point, I was kind of on my heels, didn't know what to do. So I didn't say anything. I just turned around and started walking backward to my bedroom. I looked over my shoulder and sure enough, this lady with her Bible in her hand is following me into my house. <laughs> she, true story, she followed me all the way to my bedroom. I was so freaked out, man. I did what all 17-year-old gun-carrying, drug-dealing kids do. I got in my bed and I pulled the covers up over my head. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> true story. And... Leanne just kind of sat there, I guess. I don't know what she was doing. But she pulled the covers off my head. And she said, Keith, I'm actually not going to preach to you today. I'm not here to tell you how to live. She said, I just want to pray for you. Is that okay? And I said, sure, hoping that she'd leave. (laughs) And she just sat on the edge of my bed. And she put her hand on my shoulder. And she just prayed. And her first words were, dear God. And when she said, dear God, I can't explain it other than to tell you I knew in that moment that God was real. Because here was a woman who walked, yeah, go ahead, give God praise, that's awesome, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, When I heard that, all I knew is that God was real, because here was a woman who walked with God. And then she prayed a very simple prayer, got done, left the Bible at the foot of my bed with an invitation to her church with a time and date on it, you know, and said, I want you to come and be my guest at church. And I said, I don't know about that. She said, you'll come. And she said, I also want you to try to read that book, the Bible that I gave you. I said, well, I don't like to read. She said, you'll read it. (laughs) And then she left. Now, what's amazing is every night for two weeks, I can't explain it or I couldn't explain it at the time. But I got beside my bed every night and I prayed. I got on my knees because I didn't know. I thought the, the posture mattered. By the way, it doesn't. And so, thank God, because uh, some of you need to get on your knee replacements and play. It, it, and that's hard to do. But, you know, we, we, we always think it's about that, but it was my heart that was just open to God. I got beside my bed every night and I opened that Bible. I didn't know what to read or how to read it. I just opened it up and I was just like, God, speak to me. And I I prayed this every night for two weeks. Jesus, if you're real, will you change my life? That was my prayer. Jesus, if you're real, will you change my life? And I got to tell you, God was up to the challenge. Because 
About two weeks after, I called my probation officer after this visit, and I was wanting to go to this woman's church to find out more about God, about the Lord. And so I called my probation officer up, and I said, hey, Mark, can I go to church? And he literally started laughing at me on the phone. (laughs) Now, I know Mark and have a relationship with him to this day. He's a real person. And so uh, this is a real story, not a preacher story. So we, um, but um, was that too much? Okay, so... (laughs) You guys are just so awake. It's so fun. All right. Um, But I remember telling Mark, Mark, I want to go to church. And he laughed. He hung up the phone on me. Now, again, I've been in his office almost every week for the last five years. He's known me. He knows I'm looking for an out. I'm looking for a back door. I'm trying to slip and get away. And finally, after a few days of doing this and asking him, he relents and says, okay, Keith, you can go to church. And so for the first time in my life, of my own volition, I walk into a church service and I immediately regretted my decision. (laughs) Because everybody was so stinking nice. Like I walked in, I was greeted when I got out of my mom's car because my mom had to take me to church because that's how you have to go to church when you're on probation. And so like I walk into church, everybody's hugging me and being nice to me. And I'm thinking, man, if you only knew what I've done. Finally, the lady that didn't, had come to my house to pray for me, Leanne saw me in the back, you know, in the, in the lobby, and she came up and said, Keith, uh, do you want to sit with our family this morning? And I said, no thanks. And I just went in, and I sat by myself about four rows back. The music started, and I was a little confused. I was like, wow, drums in church, this is cool. Um, and then all of a sudden, the pastor gets up, and he begins to talk about the cross of Christ. And how Jesus gave up his dignity on the cross to restore ours. And I don't know what kind of dignity you've lost in your life, but the cross is the cruel instrument by which God remedies humanity's sin problem. And I heard that for the very first time, that in the cross, that my failures are not final. That because of the cross, the written record that's stacked against me and all the things that not are just written, but no one really knows, but God knows. And I know all those things that hang over my head, that in the cross, not only have they been erased, but they've been nailed to it. Final word has been spoken. And you know what that word is? Forgiven. You know what that word is? It's new. And I began to hear this message for the first time in my life. And when the pastor gave the invitation to respond to the gospel and to the love of God, I knew for certain that everybody in that church would jump up to their feet. So he's giving the invitation and he says, if you need to receive the power of the cross and the resurrection to transform your life, stand right now. And I jumped up to my feet excitedly and looked around only to realize it's just me. Because everybody else, I guess, had already decided. (laughs) But it was my day. It was my moment. And you know what? I stood there frozen, and the pastor was, like, giving one of those invitations for people to come down. And I'm like, dude, I'm the only one, and I'm not going down there. So I'm just kind of standing there, and everybody's waiting on me as the music plays. The same woman that came into my bedroom and prayed for me walked across the aisle. Leanne put her arm around me, and she said, Keith, I know that you're wrestling with surrender. I know that you want to, but you don't know how. I want to encourage you that you're not alone and you don't have to do this by yourself. And I'll walk down to the front with you and we can pray together. Would that be okay? And I said, yeah, let's do it. I took a step out of that aisle. It was 22 years ago. And it hasn't worn off. 
It hasn't worn off. Because when I stepped out, the freedom that came from releasing all the junk and the baggage and the unforgiveness and the hatred and the pain and the guilt and the shame and all the stuff, not just what I did, but what others had done to me, that in an instant, all of a sudden forgiveness began to flow to my father in a way that I can't describe other than God put his love in my heart for my family. Transformation began to happen on the inside of me because I was free from my past. I was now made alive in Christ and forgiven of my sins and my debt was canceled and now I've been called to live victorious. So I believe that message. Fast forward six weeks later from that decision to give my life from Christ. Remember, I'm still on house arrest. I had to go back to court and face that stack that was written against me. But it was during that six-week time period of coming to Christ and my next court date, that transformation began to happen so radically in my life that my GPA at my high school went from a 1.3 to a 3.6. God began to renew and transform my mind instead of watching MTV all the time, which when, this is when they used to play music. But um, <laughs> I began to open my Bible and I began to just go through these pages and read like in the book of Job that I later found out was Job, which was so cool. And then... <laughs> And then I realized why people tell you to turn three quarters of the way through the Bible and start reading, you know, which is a weird way to start reading a book because um, you read in John. And, and all of a sudden, all these things began to come alive to me and I began to share Christ on my campus and me and a friend started a campus club to lead our friends to Christ in our senior year. Over 80 of our friends came to that Bible study and gave their lives to Christ. God began to transform my life. I go back to court after six weeks, and on top of that stack of papers that were written against me, all my charges, all the times that I had done something wrong and been kicked out of school or arrested or run away from home, on top of that was a letter from my pastor who told the story of what God had done in my life, how he was transforming me. And on that day, all the juveniles have to go to court, at least in the county where I was at. We all had to go to court on the same day every month. And they kind of, you know, herded us all in. So in front of all of my peers, the judge takes the letter that my pastor had written about my story of redemption and the hope that I found in Christ, and he reads it publicly for everyone to hear. So the cat was kind of out of the bag after that. But the coolest part of that story, God began to redeem and restore so much in my life. I went on to college and graduated cum laude at the top of my class but the coolest part of that story is the woman that came into my bedroom and prayed for me. Five years later, I married her daughter. <laughs> yeah. That's Samantha. It's my two boys, our two boys, Joel and Jude, 14 and 11. Samantha's leading worship this morning at Park Crest Christian Church in Long Beach, California while I'm here sharing our story. Everything that God's done in my life, I don't deserve. But when I gave him the pen and I let him write my story, and I said, God, all I've done is made a mess of it. But you take it. You write the story. 
Jesus did for me, what Paul told the Colossians that he would do for them, that he disarmed and dismantled the powers that held power over them, that held authority over them. And that's what Christ did for me. He broke the power of addiction and the cycle of abuse and the feeling of despair and the finality of death. And in the cross, he reconciles the world to himself. And I'm so thankful for a gospel that's big enough for you and for me and for ye. Kanye got saved and it's awesome. Listen, the gospel is big enough and I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how God will write your story and redeem it and reclaim it and renew his plan in your life and in your family's life. But I wanna tell you, he can do it. And he wants to do it. And today, if you're in that place where you're not really sure what to do, can I just invite you to surrender? You don't have to say all the right words. You don't have to be in the right posture of prayer, but it is the posture of your heart. And today, when I get ready to pray in just a few minutes, if you're one of these people where you're not really sure where you stand with God, maybe you've lived your life feeling like an oops and an accident, the guilt and the shame hangs over your head, there's bitterness that you can't let go of and it's holding you back. Whatever that thing is that you need to surrender today, know this, that Christ has already carried it in the cross. He's absorbed all the punishment and all the shame in himself. And I'm standing here proof that there is a resurrected Christ who still changes lives. And this story is not just for me, it's for everyone. And so would you please stand with me today as we pray. And if you need to surrender, do so during this prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you for speaking to us today. Dear Jesus, thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for being there at every intersection, around every corner, all the uncertainties, the moments when it felt like you were a million miles away. And yet God, here we stand. I pray that today that you would whisper your love into the ear of every person in this room today that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are loved immeasurably more than they can even ask, think, or imagine. They are loved by you. So today, fill our hearts with that love and may it overflow in Jesus' name. And everyone that believed said amen. Could we worship in response to his goodness and greatness today? How great.